Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Indeed. Do you want to finish your Danish? No, I'll, go, I'll come back to it. You're going to keep that for half time. <laughs> in between take one and take two, you'll finish off your... Well, in, in Denmark, they don't call them Danish. They're, Vien, they're Viennese something. Anyway. But it's a nice... Yeah, that's weird, isn't it's it? It's a pastry. That's what it we're talking about. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm fine. Thank you. I'm just I, I'm just between being in Bergen and Trieste. Thanks for asking. Can, can, are you celebrating Liz Truss Day? I beg your pardon? It's a, As we speak, it's a year since Liz Truss realised that she was cataclysmically useless and and bowed out. So <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yes, one year. So if, wow. Matt Chorley tweeted earlier saying, Happy Liz Truss Day to those who celebrate. <laughs> So I, I think I'm going to have a glass. Is she, remind me, because I kind of lost track of this, is she still collecting the full Prime Minister's pension? Probably, I mean, you know, for the, re- for the rest of her life. Yes, and I'm looking forward to her, her honours list as well. Yeah. Is, is, is that happening? Well, inevitably. Wow. Which would be great. It's also, um, I know you're marking this, 30 years to the day mm-hmm. that I switch from breakfast to mid-morning on Radio 1. Wow. It's quite a thing. Did that signally improve your sleeping? It did. Although there was a great, there was a jingle which Blur did for the show, which went, Simon Mayo in the morning is no longer yawning anymore. (laughs) It was really nice. It was really neat. (laughs) What was it to the tune of? No, he'd done his own. Oh, right. Damon Albarn did his own. Jeff Smith, who's producer, he got the jingle. It's still up there somewhere. It's still... So obviously Blur and so obviously Damon. So they literally recorded it specially for you? Yeah, I think they were doing a session wow. in, in Maida Vale and then he said, can you do us a jingle? They just knocked it off, as it were. That's in America, amazing. That different. It's also, as far as this show is concerned, and I noticed this because it was on social media, which you don't go into anymore. It's three years since Kip Freshwater did his smelly pants wee shout. Apparently, according no. to his, his dad, Ed was, I think there's a, and I think we got an email from Ed later on about another thing, but it's three I did, years. I did see a thing that somebody sent me that they were doing, you know, the, the, the t-shirts that I wear, which have got band members, yes. you know, like, you know, whatever it is. And I did see once one which was smelly and pants and toilet. And with, I think they must have done. I think they must have which looks that. Which looks majestic. It does. So anyway, so they're the three anniversaries which we're marking with today's okay. show. And right. we're marking them 
by Mark reviewing these films. Why are you talking about Trieste, by the way? Because oh, I'm, I'm so I was at the Bergen Film Festival oh, uh, yeah. last week. There was so a post- was, photo of you looking very cold. We went up a fjord. How cold was it? It was cold, but you know, I mean, it, it wasn't as cold as like Leeds. I mean, it was, you no. know, it was, it, and it wasn't raining. That was the other thing. And of course, you, because you know, because you've been to Norway, it was just. Un- I have never been to Norway. That's what you went to Tromso. No. Ain't no party like a Tromso love party. I remember us talking about that, but I've never been to Norway. Where was the Museum of the Penis? That's in Copenhagen. No, that's in Reykjavik. Reykjavik. I beg your pardon. I'm sorry, I thought you'd been to Norway. No, the Penis Museum, uh, the gift shop is quite something. <laughs> Just if you're just coming to this for the first time, I'm not making this up. This is a real thing. This is a real conversation yeah, that really happened about a real place. Yeah. Anyway, yes. But they positioned, they've actually positioned the gift shop so you can't just turn up and go to the gift shop. No, you you have do to go, actually have to go through, through the museum to get to the gift the shop. The museum of it's the a, Mr. Happy. It's a bit like at an airport, you you have to walk through <laughs> duty right. free. You ha- and, and museums, you Large have to Large Toblerone, sir? Do they do they exist you anywhere can't say, else? You can't say that in the penis museum. You say a large Toblerone. They'll say, yes, we have one over here from the 13th century. Yes, yeah, so anyway. It's triangular. It's triangular chocolate from triangular trees and triangular honey with made by triangular bees. And anyway, oh, Mr. Confectioner, please. That was a di- Anyway, that was a little diversion. It was. Yeah, so I was on the Norwegian documentary strand jury of the Bergen Film Festival, mm. having previously played at the Tromso Film Festival. So I've been to Norway four times now. And I'm about to go straight from this studio, hot foot, mm-hmm. to Trieste. So by the time people are listening to this podcast, I shall be in Trieste watching science fiction fantasy films and uh, interviewing Pino Donaccio. Who? What's one then? Well, I can't, uh, what hasn't happened yet, has it? Well, you probably decided. No, I've watched... I've watched some, but what not was the all best of them. thing you've seen? So I can't tell you because I'm on the jury. That's not how it works. Is it not? Just tell me. No, I'll go to the betting shop and say, "What are the odds?" <laughs> this thing in Trieste, they'll say, "Go yeah. away." Anyway, well, the, you... the the Argentine necrophile robot one was a particular eye opener. Right. Okay. Maybe we'll come <laughs> to that at some stage. Anyway, on the show, on the show so far, what are we doing? We will be reviewing uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, uh, Typist Artist Pirate King, Cat Person, and Peeping Tom, which is reissued as part of the BFI's Powell and Pressburger season, which brings us to our incredibly special guest, and we are talking royalty. Yes, so this is Thelma Schoonmaker. So so because, obviously, when she's here, yes. you, you know, it'll be a little bit embarrassing to talk about her in, the, in these terms. Mm-hmm. So just do us a, three sentences on why she is royalty, and then when she's, when she's here, then people will go, wow. Uh, probably the industry's greatest living director is responsible for uh, for editing Martin Scorsese's body of work, also is a great champion of Powell and Pressburger, um, was married to uh, now the late Michael Powell and has been a, a great champion of getting their movies back into the popular consciousness. Right. Um, and she is erudite, el- erudite, sorry, me, uh, eloquent, uh, Eloquent. Somebody who lives and breathes cinema and is also an unbelievably nice person and is genuine royalty. So we ha- and we have some listeners' questions, which so in take so basically you'll hear Thelma in this take, in take one. Then take two, which has, as you know, landed adjacent to this uh, podcast. You know, oh. That was it landing. List- great. Listeners' questions uh, will be there, along with other uh, stuff as it occurs. The weekend watch list and the weekend not list. Um, bonus reviews? Yes, bonus reviews of 
uh, Suitable Flesh, which is very scrungy and rubbery. Uh, Dr. Jekyll, which is the new version of Dr. Jekyll starring Eddie Izzard. And Beetlejuice is back in cinemas. Uh, Pretentious Moi is currently Mark 20 versus Mark 19. 19. Big disappointment last week, obviously. No, I got... One frame back is... Hang on. Did you actually not give me the point last week? Incorrect answer. So that was... Let's not go because I didn't say we chapter. Did, we did all this. We did all this last week. You didn't get the point. If you don't get the title right, you don't. Well, get I didn't the point. say John Wick chapter four. That's right. I said John Wick four. Also, one frame back is inspired by Thelma Schoomaker, and we're looking at suddenly the Liz Trust Day is seeming all the more relevant. Powell and Pressburger. Uh, you can access all of this fun via the Apple Podcast, or you can go to extratastes.com for all non-fruit related devices. If you are already a Vanguard Easter. Uh, as always, um, Mark isn't going to say it because he's in a grump. We salute you. Um, guilty pleasures has been something which has been discussed over the years. A lot. Steve Boniface in Kent. Oh, Boniface is a great name. There was a Pope Boniface. Pope Boniface was the person who commissioned, whichever artist it was, and he, he commissioned them after saying, draw a circle. He saw them draw a perfect circle. Somebody very famous. Anyway, carrying on. Right, very good. Little papal, um, papal triv. There's not a lot of papal trivia, is no, there? except for the fact that papal, uh, inf- I said papal infidelity, papal infallibility only works during the issuing of papal decrees. It doesn't mean that the pope can't do anything wrong, it just means the pope is infallible when issuing decrees, which are rare, right? Anything else on the papal? Nope, carry on, no, oh, yes, another uh, thing, yeah, um. Hiccuping is considered to be a sign of demonic possession because a pope once hiccuped to death. Steve Boniface in Kent. Uh, Dear Guilty and Pleasure, just a quick note in support of last week's emergency mailer who said Guilty Pleasure should be renamed Heart Over Brain Movies or Hobbs. If for no other reason, this would allow us to call those who belittle our choices as Hobbs Snobs, uh, which is is very, very good. Uh, Tinkity Tong and Hanks for everything. Hannah in Leamington Spa. Hannah... D. Clint Psych Ethics Committee member, Lit and Vanguard, hanging out in the cancer psychology corner of the church. I very much agree with Simon on this. Where this makes me angrier than a Sex in the City 2 entourage joint film venture okay. is the people that start to tell you what they think you should be embarrassed, ashamed, or guilty about watching, listening to, and uh, reading, and so on. Yes. For example... And Mark's annoying whining voice he does may be helpful here. (laughs) I would like to respond thus. Unless I'm going to tie you to a chair and make you listen or watch it, shut up. In these times of dark news and hard mental health challenges, why would you waste your time and breath being mean about something that brings someone else joy? What kind of person does that make you? On a good day, I might ask, are they okay? On a bad day, it might be... On your bike, Melon Farmer. As someone who is trying to uh, make things psychologically easier for people, as a professional and hopefully as a human, this makes me very ranty. And and if I want to watch The Summer I Turn Pretty on repeat because I like it and most of the soundtrack is the tremendous Taylor, I will. Keep it up and I'll tie you to a chair and make you watch it too. Up with peace, tolerance and people simply going, I'm glad you like it. Good for you. And down with people who impose their options on everyone else, especially if they're orange. Love the show. Look how I did my own redacting. Hashtag Simon Poole taught me all I know. 
There you go. That's how it gets included. <laughs> that isn't the proper hashtag either. I don't think that's a trending uh, thing. Um, as ever, correspondence at covenantmayor.com. I do like the idea of a hobsnob. I do like maybe hobsnob is, yeah, yeah. uh, is very good. Anyway, there's something out. There is a movie which is out, yes. which I think you might tell us about. Okay, so this is a really fascinating case. Typist, artist, pirate king, which is the new film by Carol Morley, who is the British director behind The Falling, which everyone loved, including me. And Out of Blue, which I seem to be singly alone in loving as much as I did. Typist Artist Pirate King is inspired by the real-life story of Audrey Amos, although it's, it has a central road movie conceit, which is, which is fiction. She was a British artist who spent large parts of her life in psychiatric institutions. And after she died, I think 2013, her, quote, avant-garde and misunderstood work was donated to the Welcome Collection. And... Carol Morley had a welcome screenwriting fellowship. She found, fell in love with the work, started extensively cataloging it whilst working on a script for the film. The film takes its title from her job description on her passport, right. typist, artist, pirate king. Can so, you put that on a podcast? On a, on a, on a, on a passport. Apparently you can, That's or fantastic. at least you could, I know. So Monica Dolan, who's great, is Audrey, living by herself, making collage art from sweet wrappers and food packets and railing at Kelly McDonald Sandra, who is the psychiatric nurse who comes to visit her. One day, Audrey shows Sandra a clipping in the paper about a, a, an art competition, a local art competition. She says, you have to take me to this gallery because this is my chance to, you know, to have my art exhibited. I mean, she, you know, she had a, a, a past in, in art. And Sandra agrees, you know, she doesn't want to, but she says, okay, I will do it. It's only when they're en route that she discovers that local means local to where Audrey used to live, which is Sunderland. So through a great dramatic contrivance, she agrees that she will drive her to Sunderland with her artwork to go and enter this competition. And en route, the pair bicker and argue and fall in and out of love with each other and with the world. Here is a a short version of the trailer. I'll be writing a letter of complaint about your late arrival. Yeah, you too. The Queen. That's more like it. Any changes we should be aware of? Your appearance has slipped to an all-time low. This stuff. That's my art. I used to be in the kitchen sink school of realism, but now I'm avant-garde and misunderstood. Yeah. You need to drive myself and my art to this gallery before the deadline. Must be close by now. It is 280 miles precisely. Sunderland. You said it was local. It is to me. Well, but let's get a move on, heave ho. That is a good joke, isn't it? You said it was local, it is to me. I think that that is an example of a trailer yeah. which makes you want to see the film. It is. And probably doesn't have the best bits in it. Well, here's the really interesting thing. So the journey is interspersed with frames of Audrey's artwork, which is discovered through Carol Morley's research. And as they do the journey, they meet a number of people that she thinks are people from her past because she is seeing people not as they are, but as she perceives the world to be. When I first saw this a while ago now, I saw it on a screener link and I thought it was fine. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Carol Morley's, but it didn't particularly move me. Then um, I saw it again at the Shetland Film Festival, which um, the good lady, Professor Herindors, and I um, curate is now uh, finished, but we had it the most recent one. And it was like watching a different film. 
it absolutely took the roof off. It was like one of the standout hits of the festival. And it was that the weird experience. I mean, I've talked about this before. Sometimes you see a film twice and it's, it is like watching a different movie. What had previously seemed kind of performative and actorly about Monica Dolan's performance suddenly seemed to me to be like an expression of Audrey's projected personality, which is contrasted very, very starkly with Sandra's more kind of retiring clinical approach. There were scenes in which when I was watching it on my own, on a laptop, I completely missed the humor. And then being in an audience when people were, you know how that thing when you don't get a joke and then you suddenly see it when people start laughing at the right places. And because the subject matter is quite dark sometimes, the humor is really, really important so that you've got this interplay between dark and light. More importantly, I thought that what initially seemed to me like a fairly kind of broad strokes um, portrait of the central character's mental health struggles, in the seeing it in an auditorium with an audience, actually suddenly became like, no, this is really smart and insightful and sympathetic and is touching people and is making people laugh and cry. And everyone in the room is falling in love with that central character. The other thing, of course, is in the room, the music drops, oh, the needle drops are particularly effective. And one song of just before we did the, the, the show, I just played you this song. It's a Boy George song from from uh, around that period in 2013, whatever it was. And it's called King of Everything. And I had never heard it before. And hearing it in the room, I suddenly thought, this is one of the best pop songs I have ever heard. And it is brilliantly deployed. I mean, Carol Morley has always had a really sharp ear for, for how to deploy a well-chosen tune. And, you know, I think the soundtrack, so for me, Out of Blue, one of the reasons I love Out of Blue is because the Clint Mansell soundtrack is so fantastic. So for me, the effect of seeing it twice was it was almost as profound as the transition from the first time I saw AI and the second time I saw AI, although that was divided by a period of years and this was just divided by a period of months. So my my advice would be this. Firstly, do go see it because it's a really, really interesting film. But secondly, go see it in a cinema. Don't wait for it to, to, to be on a streaming service. Don't wait to watch it at home. Go see it in a cinema with an audience because I, I can guarantee you, and there is nothing more delightful than seeing a film which you kind of, you hadn't really got the first time round. And then that brilliant communal experience of sitting in a, in a full cinema and the audience go with it and you go, I get it. It's like, you know that thing about if you have a really lovely whiskey and the idea is that you drop at one drop of water into it and it opens up the flavour of the whiskey. I've read that kind of thing, yes. It's like that. Right. And the audience is the drop of water. Yes, I know the analogy doesn't quite work, but I thought it was So quite you're the whiskey <laughs> and the, everyone else is a little drop of water. And I am in the water. jar. Yes, exactly. That is, I am the whiskey and the audience is a little drop of water. And that tells you everything you need to know both about the film and more importantly about me. Typist, artist, pirate, pirate king. king. And Carol Morley got everyone to, to chant the title because I kept getting the order the wrong way. Artist, I mean, in fact, even on our script, it came up as pirate, pirate king, king, artist, artist typist, Lord yeah. typist. Typist, artist, pirate, king. Uh, still to come, Mark is going to be reviewing these movies. I have to go back to the earlier part of my script. I'm going to be reviewing Five Nights at Freddy's and uh, something else and... Cat Person. Cat Person and, and Peeping Tom with our special guest. Young Thelma. That's what I'm going to call her. Very good. Uh, we'll be back before you can say yesterday's history, tomorrow a mystery, and today is a gift. That's why we call it The, the Present. present.
This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so? I would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again, this is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech-savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware, and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover, such as... Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th. As women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers, and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. And here we go with an email from someone who sounds as though he was caught up in the Watergate scandal. Okay. Well, uh, in, in, in real life? Well, his name is W. David Lichty. Okay. <laughs> yes. It's probably served <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> yeah, and he is also in Indianapolis, although he says W. David Lichty, Indiana, Indiana the US, and all that, mm-hmm. and, that and he's put it phonetically. Yes. Uh, dear chapter and Indiana, when I helped, oh, this is about content warnings, okay. which is very, which is very interesting because we've had light-hearted um, emails about whether they're really necessary, and then last week someone was saying, well, actually, sometimes they are, and yeah. they look at the content warning. They don't mind if they're a little bit spoilery because it helps them make an informed. And as we said, you can always close your eyes when the certificate is on. Yeah. So, what do you call W. David Lee? Should we call him W. W. No, but it's like F. Scott Fitzgerald, you would call Scott, wouldn't you? You wouldn't say, hello, F. F. Murray Abraham, would you call him Murray? You could call him Sir, yes. I think. We just, we, you and I this morning watched his acceptance speech, his Oscar acceptance speech for... After Amadeus. For Amadeus I was supposed yeah. to be at a live showing of well, the film plus um, orchestra and 
choir. And why were you not the there? Because... because there was a confusion over dates. Yes, but what were you doing instead? I was prepping this show. Prepping this show That's and, what I was and keeping, doing. The, keeping a light uh, burning for me. So you could remember where I lived. Yes. Anyway, David says, when I helped run a little art theatre, we had a very advanced screening of Boys Don't Cry, oh. which Hilary Swank yeah. deserved her first Oscar win. When her character is found to have been only masquerading as a man, her then closest friends abuse and rape her. The impactful scene is not only not graphic, but it is in no way exploitative. The brutality is shown by lingering on her pained face, giving the audience the exact right high levels of both empathy and revulsion. As the scene progressed, at least six women calmly got up and walked out of the theatre. This was not done angrily, and I verified that no one had complained to my employees. I guess this to be due to its successfully conveying exactly and only the horror of that barbarism. Reasoning that people either already did know the basic plot of this true life story and wouldn't be spoiled, or didn't, and shouldn't be ambushed, I insisted that we put a little note taped down to the counter at the box office to the effect of, and this is what was on the note, mm -hmm. please be aware that Boys Don't Cry contains a non-graphic but very effective scene of rape. Actually, the note was much longer, but I can't remember everything and many years have passed. We received no complaints about that note in the two months that we played the film. And on the first weekend, 17 thank yous, uh, the most grateful sounding of which ended with the lady returning to her car and doing something else with her evening. Uh, and I thought, OK, interesting, because what David has touched on there is precisely the reason yeah, for exactly. people saying this is the kind of thing that we're representing here. And no one thought it was a spoiler. And yeah. people made wise and informed decisions on the basis of it. Yeah. yeah. And then he signs off. Ups and downs. Hello to Fairport Convention. I haven't been mentioned for a while. For a while. And that one guy and everyone else you like. Uh, <laughs> thanks for keeping this going. 18 years isn't yet enough. W. David Lichty. Thanks, W. Uh, it's a great name. In, in should Indiana. be a novelist. He should, shouldn't he, really? Yeah. Or in prison with all the Nixon <laughs> guys. Um, Incidentally, there hasn't been a... I, we're recording this on Wednesday. Yes. At the moment, most of the co-defendants in the Trump fixing the elections, they, yes. they all appear to be copying a bargain. Do you think... One sentence on this, because then yeah. we've got the box I was top okay. 10 and we've got a film. Yeah, 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 yeah. One sentence. Is Giuliani going to take a, take a deal? I don't know whether they'll offer him one. That would be funny if he did. Yeah, yeah. So box office Old top ten. Old face. Box office top ten. At uh, number 11. No, 15. Oh, yeah, number 15. At number 15, not in America, however, Foe, F-O-E. Which is very good up until the moment that it isn't. So it is two-thirds of a good film and one-third of a... Really? Uh, number 14, it lives inside. <laughs> Why are you doing it in that voice? Yeah. Is it is that, is that round the back of your bins? I know where you live. All that. Yes. I liked it lives inside. I thought it was a very, you know, interesting, creepy, thoughtful horror movie. What is the it, by the way? What is it that lives inside? It is a dark spirit that was spoken of in childhood stories. Okay. And may or may not be real. Okay. I'd say probably not. Anyway, uh, Saw 10 is at 10. <laughs> Saw 10. 
<laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's one of the better Saw movies, and it does what it says on the tin. The Creator is at number nine, number seven in the States. I think both you and I were very pleasantly surprised by how ambitious it is. If you you can go back and hear our uh, interview with the director, well, your interview with the director, yeah, I just Edwards, yeah, yeah, which uh, it was a, a, a you know, in which I think he gave very good account of himself, and I'm just delighted to see him. Do it. He, he talked himself about that sweet spot between Monsters, which was his independent film, and the Star Wars franchise, and this is right in that sweet spot. And it looks, I mean, for what they actually paid for it, it yeah. looks astonishing. Which is an incredible skill. If you've got that skill of making yeah. a, a very making it look like a very expensive yeah, movie, exactly, and costing half. Uh, number eight is The Great Escaper. It's very charming. Um, Michael Caine has now said that he he has retired although obviously since he did say that to us three years was it three yeah. years ago how many years ago but um glenda jackson and michael uh, michael kane in this film are really really well cast and lovely performances glenda jackson's final performance is so moving although i do i, I do accept that it was uh, you know partly because she reminded me so much of my mum. uh uk number seven nothing in the states is some otherhood so the interesting thing with some otherhood is it has, on the one hand, this kind of you know sparky energy, which um, the you know Anotherhood uh, you expect from the Anotherhood movies, and it found its audience, I think, in, in its first week. It it wasn't for me, but I do appreciate the kind of the just the like I said, just the sheer energy of the filmmaking. Even if even if a lot of the gags fell flat for me, and some of them I think are you know awkwardly ill judged, but you know it's it. There are things about it that are energetic and, hey, you know, it, it, I'm not the target audience. Uh, number six, number three in the States, The Exorcist Believer. Number five is Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie. Which is much better than one might have expected. Is I mean, better, I mean, better than The Exorcist. Oh, way better. Yeah, way, way better. Um, yeah, no, Paw Patrol, Mighty Movie is actually, I mean, if you're, if you're a parent taking young kids, I mean, everyone knows about, everyone who's got young kids will know about Paw Patrol. If you're taking young kids to see this, I mean, it's got very, very good score, romping score, bright candy colored visuals. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 it does what it does on the on the big screen, and uh, and it's kind of, yeah. I mean, it's it's Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, and it is much better than I thought it was going to be. Number four is Leo, which I haven't seen because it wasn't press screen. It is a 2023 Indian Tamil language action thriller. Apparently, it is inspired by David Cronenberg's A History of Violence, which is itself, of course, uh, adapted from uh, a graphic novel. So, if anyone's seen it, please let me know well, because that sounds like a fascinating. Uh, reworking. I mean, I love History of Violence. It's one of my favourite Cronenberg films. This emailer has seen Oh, you have? Okay, cool. Uh, l um, yes. Uh, and it, there's no name attached to it, okay. so it's anonymous. MTL, fourth-time emailer. About a year ago, I was introduced by my friend who is from Tamil Nadu in the south of India okay. uh, to the wonders of Tamil language cinema, a.k.a. Collywood. What he has exposed me to is a world of wonderful film I feel I must evangelise about. Collywood mainly produces fun, immersive, and incredibly well-made action movies of a caliber that is very rare in Hollywood nowadays. These movies are fast, intricate, with wonderfully choreographed fights and span subject matter from medical corruption to football coaching. Leo, directed by Lokesh Kanagaraj, mm -hmm. the third film is a one-director cinematic universe of crime movies, promises to be as exciting as the previous entries. It stars Vijay... 
Tamil Nadu's answer to Tom Cruise. I believe it will have a limited cinema release in the UK, so I highly encourage Mark to see it. Well, it's gone in st- straight in at number four, and so it is done pretty solidly. And as I said, it, not not press screen. So, uh, I mean, I'm just intrigued because of this thing, this this connection with um, uh, with a history of violence, which I which I think is a terrific film. So, you know. Uh, number three in this country and number one in the States, Taylor Swift, The Era's Tour, the concert, Hambot on yes. our YouTube channel. I love this review from Mark because you did a, a review last week. Yeah, because it, it was number one in the charts and I'd been to see it at the cinema. I didn't expect you to cover it, but I'm so happy that you acknowledged Taylor's talent and genius outside of how the movie was filmed and edited. I'm so excited to see the movie now and I cannot wait to see how Beyonce's renaissance will look too. Anyway, so. I mean, does, does anybody doubt Taylor Swift's talent? I don't think so. I, don't I mean, she, isn't she so. isn't she kind of now? And sorry, forgive me for my very arcane, arcane, old pop references. Isn't she now in the place that Madonna was in the nineties? You know, the conqueror of all universes and respect. You know, somebody who started out, people thought, "Oh, this is pop." But by the time you get to this, isn't she now in that kind of Madonna, queen of queen of all that she surveys role? I don't think anybody thinks that she's not brilliant. Do they? Do they? If you go looking below the line, you will find lots of people. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. that's what I'm. That's no, what no, I'm but but what but, you're but, saying but, but, is but, respectable but, opinion. Well, in in as much as pretty much the verdict, you know, the verdict on Ed Sheeran is that he's an incredibly successful and uh, and good songwriter. Right. And so you know, you might not like it, but that's that's the considered opinion. And I think most people go. It might be for me. It might not be for me. Taylor Swift is a genius. So. I think that's pretty much where yeah. everyone is. And, the, and clearly the film has been made as a film and not just a televised concert. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it is It is a you know a cinematic, swirling cinematic experience. And, of course, it made headlines because of the fact that after the big studios went, they're not really very interested in that, they went direct to the cinemas and, uh, and then suddenly took a ton of money. So it's up there with ABBA the movie is what you're saying. Abba the movie is not a good movie. I mean, that's the the weird thing about Abba the movie is, despite the 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 fact that it's Abba, that whole rubbish conceit of the journalist following them around so that he can get to interview them and failing and therefore having to go. And when he finally finally does it, get to ask his, it's it, it's not a good movie. Uh, number two is Killers of the Flower Moon. A couple of emails here. Yes, go ahead. Um, Mark Thompson, but not the former chairman of the BBC. And then the head of New York Times and CNN. Anyway, I was interested in your take. I've got a few words to say to him. (laughs) Thanks a lot. I was interested in your take on Killers of the Flower Moon runtime and how a story should take the time it takes and the demands of streaming. Yes. Plus, there seemed to be this uh, notion, two hours 20 being the limit for a theatrical runtime. It's interesting you use the word theatrical. Hamlet or King Lear take four hours to play out in a theatre. There's also been uh, longer films such as Lawrence of Arabia. Plus, audiences were clearly happy to sit through Oppenheimer and Avatar too. I think the media and critics banging on about it being uh, three and a half hours long suggests that that's a bad thing. This will put audiences off. Have you considered that Scorsese might be kicking back at the notion that audiences have lost their attention span. Cinema weaned itself off intervals, the break in the action for toilet trips and snack refills, but now audiences actively avoid cinema because of streaming. I love the film, and so did my 16-year-old daughter, who has no issue with long films. She preferred Oppenheimer to Barbie, although loved both, and treated her friends to a trip to see Oppenheimer in IMAX the day it came out. It didn't feel that long, but then... Time isn't an issue for me. The cost of cinema these days means I don't go as often, so a three-hour-plus Scorsese film sounds great and value for money too. Thank you, Mark Thompson, but not that one. And David in Sheffield, I'm a little baffled 
if one can be a little baffled, because yes. you either are baffled yeah. or not, at the five-star reviews the film seems to be receiving. The narrative thread running through the film was flimsy at best, with most of the plot having been outlined in the various three... I'm getting this out of the way before Thelma joins us, yeah, by the way. Uh, Three-minute trailers seen over the last six months. De Niro's Bill Hale is a one-dimensional villain, and DiCaprio's Ernest flops between dim-witted and street-smart, depending on what the plot needs at any given moment. Given the title and scope of the book that... The film is based on Jesse Plemons' arrival comes far too late and is a little more than a does ex machina device to bring everything to a close. There is very little jeopardy to the scheming and investigation. Basically, everything proceeds as Hale wishes until it just doesn't. Similarly, little is made of the conflict that Ernest must feel as he is pulled in two directions. Ultimately, this is a three-star film that happens to have been directed by a beloved filmmaker, so people seem unable to see its very obvious shortcomings. Still, at least it was better than The Irishman. Um, if I can say a couple of things, um, uh, I think Lily Gladstone is absolutely terrific in the film. I think it's uh, an important and clearly heartfelt story. Um, as Thelma Schoonmaker will doubtless tell you, it was a you know it did become a real labour of love for Scorsese. Um, I think that the soundtrack, the Robbie Robertson soundtrack, with that kind of pulsing, almost sort of bluesy thing going on underneath, works really well. Uh, one thing I do want to say on the subject of the length is that I talked about the fact that we have to have a conversation about the relationship between length as demanded by streaming services, this is uh, this has Apple behind it, and as demanded by the theatrical. Um, there was a couple of things on the uh, on the video of some people saying Mark Hermo just went on about the length. Um, I I stopped watching this. The review, of course, you did. The, the review is ten minutes and six seconds long, and in total. Every single word that has anything to do with the length of the film, all added together, come to 2 minutes 56.8 seconds. So that is 72% of the review was not about the running time, and 28% of it was. Told so you not to read those. Get a life. Why do you read those comments? You know, I was on a train. I could have read a newspaper. Anyway, also, Mark Scanlon, The Killers of the Flower Moon, is beautifully shot, brilliantly acted, tells an important story. Yes, it is slow in places, but I think it needed to be. I love how it sometimes lingered on aspects of the Osage tribe's tradition and culture rather than just rush to the next movement in the story. Anyway, number one, the number one movie this week, not out in America, is Trolls Band Together. Mike, who's a bass, bass player and alumnus of the University of Manchester. Is it me? No, it's Mike. But anyway, he's clearly saying that for a reason. Long-term listener, many times email and once read out by super sub Ben Bailey-Smith. In case you need one, here's my review of Trolls Band Together. As Mark says, it is a brash, in-your-face assault on the auditory and visual senses. It is fast-paced with zippy dialogue, as colourful as an explosion in a paint factory and full of thumping pop songs. We went as a family. My daughter enjoyed it as much as she enjoyed the previous film. My wife enjoyed all the boy band references, and I enjoyed it because they did, and it's good fun. Let's be honest, if you're going to see a Trolls movie, you must have a good idea what it's going to be like by now. (laughs) Thanks for all the years of entertainment from you and the excellent production team. There you go. When I was in uh, in Bergen at the film festival, they said, um, and so what are you looking forward to seeing whilst you're here in Bergen? And I said, well, I just walked past the cinema and I was delighted to see that the Trolls movie is playing. And they went, hmm. Because apparently Trolls jokes don't go down that well in Bergen. Oh, you just thought it was No, they've got, Heartland. They've, they, 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 yeah, it is Heartland. You make Trolls jokes at your peril. Okay. There are correct Trolls jokes. When we were on, we did the trip on the Fjord, the guy said, and if you see up in the mountains, the things that look like electric pylons, they're not. They are... Is he French, the guy? He's French, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are, he was Werner Herzog. They are 
electric fences to keep in the trolls. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so that's and that's the number one movie. So troll, but obviously, if you're in Norway, don't make trolls jokes. That's the lesson. Or at least you have to make Norwegian, Norwegian trolls jokes. jokes. Tell don't, them. Don't do what I did. Tell it in Norwegian. Uh, we'll be back after the break with Thelma Schoemaker. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days. And everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, How do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp.com slash kermode. Now, our guest today has worked alongside Martin Scorsese since his debut feature film, Who's That Knocking at My Door, in 1967. Has edited all of his films since Raging Bull in 1980. It is, of course, Thelma Schoemaker. She's here to discuss her part in the BFI's restoration and celebration of her late husband, director Michael Powell's iconic body of work as part of the legendary British filmmaking duo Powell and Pressburger. Her visit also coincides with the release of her latest cinematic collaboration with Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Powell's most... What's the right word, Mark? Um, misunderstood work, Peeping Tom? Yes, I think misunderstood, misunderstood is exactly the right word. OK, you'll hear our conversation with Thelma Schoemaker after this clip from Peeping Tom. Look out for Carl Byrne as the Peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. <laughs> it's so good. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. Imagine. Someone coming towards you who wants to kill you. Regardless 
consequences. A madman? Yes. Wait! And that's a clip from wow. Peeping Tom, Thelma Schoonmaker. <laughs> Welcome. What did you What did you think of that then, watching well, that? Because you were reacting as it went through. Yes, well, I'd never seen it. First of all, it's very high quality. I don't know where they got that element. But no, I, I thought it was very good, actually. It's the precision of the voiceover, you know. If you fear him, but also pity him. It's the kind of trailer you don't make anymore. And that's out today? Yes, it's back in cinemas now. And if you haven't seen Peeping Tom, go and see it on a big screen. If you have seen it, go and see it again Mm. and definitely on a big screen because it's in a beautiful restoration. And it is a film in which the vivid colours and the way it looks in a room as opposed to, you know, on your television is really, really well worth seeing. And it's still, to this day, every bit as vividly alarming as it was when it first came out. It was the first Michael Powell film I ever saw. No. I saw it at university. It was being shown by Warwick University's Film Society. And I went to see it, not knowing anything about it, and thought it was fantastic. So I sort of came in at the end of the at the end of the story. Yes. That's why, can you why why was why was the reaction to that film so problematic? Mm, I think Really what it was is that the critics were feeling sympathy for and compassion for the character played by Carl Brown, and they couldn't handle it. They thought it was wrong for them to feel that way, so they felt the film should be destroyed. Actually, <laughs> the trade reviews, Ian Christie, who's the great Powell Pressburger scholar, says that the trade reviews were actually not bad at all. And there's an internal um, document that I've read from Anglo Amalgamated, who made the movie, saying it was a good movie. So I think it was it triggered in in the critics a wrong response, which is they they could not handle their feelings of sympathy with him. Michael Powell said to the company, "Look, don't yank it from the theater. Let the public see it, mm-hmm. and they will make a judgment on it." And he was right because now that's what's happening. But unfortunately, they didn't listen to him and yanked it from the theaters. The, the trade reviews appreciated the film craft. The review review, so the Daily Worker called it appallingly masochistic and depraved and wholly evil. And the, tribu- the Tribune said it should, you should shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer. Yes. And I interviewed Martin Scorsese. Correct me. So you corrected my pronunciation. Scorsese. Yeah. Okay. Everybody, everybody says Scorsese. I know. And it's wrong. They're all wrong. Okay. So now we are corrected. The correct pronunciation is Martin Scorsese. Yes. So I interviewed Martin Scorsese about the film when it was playing at the BFI some years ago. And I had asked him a similar question. And he said, well, the point is, it is a film about the dangers of looking. And it is impossible to look at it without experiencing the dangers of looking. And that's why it upset people. And I thought that was a perfect... Brilliant. uh, No, that's a brilliant summary. Michael says, you know, he's handsome, charming... And completely mad is the way he described him. And I really, you know, Michael, it did not totally destroy his career. He actually made some films after that. But it certainly had a blunting effect. But the British film industry was in a bad way then, too. Mm -hmm. It was hard to raise funds for money for films. And he felt that if you're going to be daring as an artist, which he always wanted to be, you're out on a limb and you can easily be sought off. But I would rather be sought off than be conventional. And so he stood by it. It was bitter. 
But Carl Broom would come and have dinner with us in London, and he just could never get over it. He kept saying, why? Why did it fail? What was wrong with it? Of course, his performance is wonderful. But Michael accepted. He had seen so many great artists destroyed. For example, Rex Ingram was destroyed by Louis B. Mayer because instead of putting Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer on the films, he would drop the mayor. Not a good idea. (laughs) So Louis B. Mayer destroyed him. And when Michael went to see Rex, who had been so important teaching him about how to direct, and the whole American crew teaching him about editing. And they were so welcoming to him in the south of France. And he went to see Rex in Hollywood, and Rex couldn't make movies anymore. It was very painful for Michael. Black Narcissus had just won a couple of Oscars. And it broke his heart to see this great genius stripped Mm -hmm. of his ability to make films. And so he had a history. He knew what it was like to be daring. How long did it take for the reevaluation of Peeping Tom before the the tide began to turn? Oddly enough, of Marty's generation, when they were in their 20s, there was one print floating around America somewhere. He said it was like a film modi. He said it was like a forbidden or a disappeared film that you literally had to track down. That's right. There was one guy who had it or something, and they all somehow had seen it. You know, Coppola, De Palma, Lucas, they had all seen it somehow, but it wasn't available. So what Marty did after he, along with Ian Christie and and Kevin Goff Yates, found Michael and brought him back and Emmerich, he got it entered into the New York Film Festival Mm -hmm. in 1980. And it was stunning. I mean, people just really went mad for it. And you can see Steven Soderbergh was deeply influenced by it. And he got it actually released in America very briefly. And then again, it vanished. We should say, because we have mentioned this earlier, but the whole season is called Cinema Unbound, The Creative Worlds of Powell and Pressburger, October 16th to December 31st at the BFI South Bank. UK-wide cinema re-releases of The Red Shoes, and I Know Where I'm Going, a major free exhibition of unseen material from the BFI National Archives, new restorations, new 35mm prints. And the more. whole nine yards. Yes, this is a passion project. This is, must have been going on for a long time. How long have you been involved with this? Well, the BFI always honors a director each year. And for a while, it was, you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, Kurosawa, Fellini. And it took a while before they got around to Powell and Pressburger, but I'm so glad they have. And I've been involved with pushing for it for a very long time, ever since Michael died, along with Scorsese. I mean, no one has done more for Michael Powell than than Martin Scorsese. He has raised the money to restore already eight of his films from the original negative, which is incredible. And he has always done anything he could to support and get people to look at the movies. I mean, for example, if he's working with a new actor sometimes on a movie, he'll start educating them about the films, giving them tapes or was tapes, not anymore, (laughs) to take home and look at. He did that with me when I came back to work with him on Raging Bull. He started educating me. And finally, he said at a certain point when they had brought Michael over to the Museum of Modern Art retrospective, would you like to meet Michael? And I said, oh, yes. (laughs) So I was working on Raging Bull with Marty and we had dinner with Michael and he just struck me immediately as someone I'd never expected to meet ever. Uh, He didn't say much, but when he said something, it was powerful. And so I've been seduced by Scorsese into the Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger work. I saw a quote, Thelma, which you gave recently. I think it was recently. Anyway, you said, Michael left a little furnace burning Mm, inside mm, me. mm. Yes, when I lost him, it was pretty devastating. But I knew Marty had wonderfully allowed me to take Michael back to 
England. I didn't want him to die in New York. If I break down, I'll I'll, re, I'll recover immediately. So don't freak out. So uh, he shut down the editing of Goodfellas. Can you imagine that? So I could take Michael home, and he died two months later. And I knew that I I wanted to, and I knew it was necessary for me to go back to finish Goodfellas because Michael had actually gotten Goodfellas made. Because one day, Michael and I used to work on his diaries on Sunday and do edit them, and he was recording them on tape, and I would transcribe them and then read them back to him. And I was telling him how upset Marty was. He couldn't sell Goodfellas because they said, you have to take the drugs out. And he said, I can't take the drugs out. That's the story. <laughs> so he had tried and tried, gotten nowhere. And so Michael was very upset that Marty was upset because he fought always for his artistic integrity. And so he said to me, read me the script. So I read him the script because he had macular degeneration. He could see, but he couldn't read very well. And after I read him the script, he said, get Marty on the phone. So I did. And he said, Marty, you have to make this movie. This is the best script I've read in 20 years. And so Marty went in one more time, and he sold it. And then Michael didn't live to see it. So it was very important for me to go back and finish the film with him, and it saved my life, really. You know, it forced me back into my world. And But what happened is that when I say that Michael left a little furnace burning inside of me, it's that I've wanted to devote as much time as I can to his legacy. And Marty and I do it all together, and it's a joy. You mentioned restoration. You mentioned it a couple of times, Thelma. Excuse the ignorance of the question. Can you explain what that involves? I imagine it's related to and similar to maybe the art of editing. I don't know. Could you just explain how you go about restoring one of these films that we're talking well, about? It's very interesting, the Technicolor films particularly, because there are three strips for mm -hmm. Technicolor different colors. And over time, they tend to shrink a bit. So when digital came along, we were able to pull those three strips together so that you don't get any blurring. And it looks beautiful. Plus, there was mold on a lot of the negatives, scratches, dirt. That can all be removed with digital. It's not editing in the sense that we're changing anything. Our motto always is to restore the film exactly the way the director wanted it. Mm -hmm. But we are able to make it look gorgeous again. And in the case of Blimp, the entire middle of Blimp had been cut out for two. I think it was done in America to save time because the film was 245. Mm -hmm. That was very long in those days. It's magnificent. So, <laughs> But one day in the BFI archive, Carolyn opened a can, and there was the middle section. And so we put it back in. And it's a wonderful section of the movie. So we're sometimes restoring scenes that have been dropped, but basically we're trying very hard, particularly with the Technicolor films, to make them look as much like Technicolor as we can, clean them up. And as you can see from the Peeping Tom, which is Eastman color, not, not uh, Technicolor, what it looks like when you can bring back the color and the vividness of these films. Do you think that um, a, a new audience coming to Powell and Pressburger and seeing the films, hopefully on the big screen, do you think they'll have the same response as the films first? Because, I mean, obviously, I, I think one of the first I saw was Matter of Life and Death, which is my partner's favorite movie of all time. And I remember her showing it to me at a very important part of our relationship, she went, this is my favorite film. You have to watch this. And it was like, okay, and now I need to see everything else by those. If you hadn't liked that film, would she have got rid of you? 
oh yes, oh, she would have shown me the door. Like that would have been it. It would have been absolutely bye bye. Moving on to the to the next. But I wonder, you know, what it'd be like now for a new audience coming to Pal and Pressburg because I think they are very modern. They're not old films. What's happened is they're sustaining in a way that some other films are not. Maybe The Kitchen Sink School isn't sustaining as well um, because it's about very specific period, whereas Michael and Emmerich were making films about humanity around the world. I was once with Michael when somebody said, what do you think about the terrible shape of the British film industry, which was in bad shape then? He said, why should there be a British film industry? We should make films for the world. And that's the way he and Emmerich always thought about it. Of course, Emmerich being European. But Michael, having spent a great deal of time in France, speaking fluent French with a terrible British accent. (laughs) (laughs) And he said he was sorry when sound came in, in a way, because in the silent days, which is what he was introduced to by Rex Ingram, you could put a card in telling the audience what's going on, right? Because there's no sound. Mm -hmm. And you could send it to Japan. They would take out the British put in the Japanese. It was the same movie. And Michael said, we had a world cinema then. And as soon as sound came in, then you had to start subtitling, dubbing, all those things. And the world cinema went away. Of course, it's back now. But I think they're sustaining in a remarkable way. I think after the war, when there was a big political change, people threw the films out, the baby with the bathwater, saying they were colonial, and which, of course, they were not. And so there was a long, long period before people would start looking at them again. But Marty and his fellow directors, they knew them from films that were shown on TV in New York and all of America because the American companies were not giving their films to TV, but the Brits did. And that's how Marty saw these films, which is a miracle. And they were on this program called Million Dollar Movie. They would run the same movie nine times in one week. And he would try and watch all nine until his mother said, if you watch that movie one more time, I'm not going to give you dinner. And I saw Blimp, my favorite, accidentally as a 15-year-old and on TV, and I never forgot it, never thinking I would ever meet the director who made it or marry him. (laughs) So when I started working with Marty, he had begun educating me about these films right away. And for some reason, I think because of TV, they survived amongst this generation of directors who are so deeply influenced by them. My world has always been radio, Thelma, and there are in radio there are many, many producers of a certain age who miss the physicality of editing on tape. They would be editing a conversation, they would take out a breath, they would put the breath around their neck so that they yeah, could put yeah. it back in, and they'd have the china graph and they'd have the splicing <laughs> tape, and they loved the physicality. And the razor blade, the and, razor blade the... and the china graph. Do you miss the physicality of editing? Celluloid. I I did, you know, and when I was being trained by my fellow editor, who uh, I was terrible student, I would say, oh, this is ridiculous. I could do this much easier on film, right? I was a very <laughs> bad student. And about two weeks in, I sort of clicked over. This happened on Casino. And because all the producers were saying at that point, you have to switch to digital, you have to switch to digital, and George Lucas was pushing it very hard, I suddenly clicked in. And now what happens on a film like Killers of the Flower Moon is we are doing things we could never have done on film. I loved editing on film. I loved it. However, now we can create our own visual effects even before we go to the big visual effect house, which we'll do the big work. But if Marty wants to try something very interesting, my visual effects editor can do it. Digitally, we can change the color. We can mix with 24 soundtracks, whereas we used to have two on film. 
and we'd have to go to another sound studio in order to mix something, even for a, an initial screening. And that cost a lot of money. We can dissolve. We can change the speed. So digital has brought incredible tools to us. It doesn't mean that the films are any better. Great masterpieces were made in the silent era where they didn't even have any machines. They would measure the length of a close-up. They would put their arms out, you know, three feet and say, well, this is a good length for a close-up. The only time they saw the movie together was when they projected it. They had no machines at all. So, and great masterpieces were made. So it does, we have better tools, but it doesn't mean that the films that were made before are not as good. There's going to be more conversation with Thelma in, uh, in take two, uh, but for the moment, Thelma Schoonmaker, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey. The good ladies from Amethyst Hair Indoors called me self-centred this week. Uh-huh. But anyway, that's enough about her. <laughs> After... <laughs> Good, didn't After that egregious abuse, I needed to relax, so I went for a session of Ashtanga Yoga. I went to one of the 15 yoga studios within walking distance of my house. It was awful. The instructor was rolling drunk, Mark. She put me in a very awkward position. You're rolling drunk, put me in a very... I see, yes, I got it, yeah. Okay, yoga. Yeah, no, yeah. The other one was funnier. The Mayos are a very health-conscious family, uh, as you know, Mark. Child three's been on the Dolly Parton diet. Okay. Very effective. Go on. It made Jolene, 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 Jolene. Oh, it made Jolene. Oh, very good. Very good. Anyway, back after this, <laughs> unless you're a vanguardista, in which case we have just one question. Yes. What did China use more of between 2011 and 2013 than the US did in the entire 20th century? There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. And the answer is, of course, cement. Really? Yeah, I know that's what no one was shouting at their podcast player machine. Uh, It was cement. Cement, or phone, as I believe it's, yes. According to estimates from the U.S. Geological Survey, America used 4.5 gigatons of cement between 1901 and 2000. Compare that with 6.6 gigatons of cement China used between 2011 and 2013. According to the International Cement Review, have you, have, have you been following that? No, it's a it's an absolute page turner, though. I reckon probably someone listening to this podcast was for instrumental in, in running inter- International Cement <laughs> Review. That's got to be a, a, an exciting publication. Can I just say, in relation to the previous joke that you made about my wife said you're so self-centered, but enough about her, yes. made me think of two things, which is enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? And that brilliant line in the Lemonhead song, which is, enough about us, let's talk about me. An email here from Kevin Watson, Dr. Kevin Watson, Head of Centre for Academic Development. Okay. Mark and Simon, greetings from the Unitarian Concession Stand. Actually, this is, this is, this is a good joke here, which I hadn't heard before. Okay. So he's a Unitarian. The name doesn't alliterate, but we Unitarians do make concessions. We're so liberal, <laughs> I've heard it said that we have, we have the Ten Commandments down to three suggestions. <laughs> 
you have to say that's that's pretty good. That's a but. There's also a very good cartoon from the uh, from some American thing, which is him coming down from the mountain. Moses, Moses coming down with, with the tablets and going. Okay, the good news is I got him down to ten. The bad news, adultery, still in there. Very good. That's still very good. But I like the idea of, well, three suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the 70s, when I was a child, says Kevin Watson, I recall my mother asking different visitors who came to our house whether they dreamed in black and white or colour. Oh, yeah. The memory came back to me when I was putting a sermon together based on the 1939 film version of The Wizard of Oz, which, of course, memorably moves from black and white, actually more like brown and white, yes. to colour in a few minutes. I wondered whether this whole area could be false memory. So I did a little digging and sure enough, it does seem that back in the days when most of us were consuming entertainment in black and white and we had photo albums in black and white, commonly reported that they dreamt in black and white too. My assumption, and there is a, she references a, a, an academic publication here, not Cement Review. Because <laughs> it's not academic. Dream Quarterly. My assumption is that is that as black and white photography and film became the exception to the rule, our dreams got colorized and now almost no one is dreaming in black and white anymore. However, I clearly remember as a child, about six or seven, scary dreams were usually in black and white, whilst colour was reserved for nice dreams. Do you recall any dreams in black and white or remember this as a topic of conversation way back when? Well, I do remember Bill Nelson recording a song called Do You Dream in Colour? Do you dream in colour? And, think, and thinking, yeah, doesn't everybody? I mean, so, I don't. I don't recall having ever dreamt in black and white. No. So the yes, I I agree. I can't remember dreaming in black and white. Um, and we didn't have a color telly till the mid seventies. So so the, a good portion of my childhood was black and white telly. But then I went to the cinema a lot, and that was you know Ben Hur and Technicolor. And I mean, not when Ben Hur first came out, obviously reissued. So I saw I saw color films from an early age. Mary Poppins, you know, Wizard. Yeah. Of, I mean, it may, so Kevin cites. Um, uh, a, a survey uh, and a questionnaire from 19, the 1942 Perceptual and Motor Skills, Volume 96. But okay, anyway, fine. Well, I mean, that's... But life is in colour. So that if you have horrific memories about your school, for example, the fact that entertainment might have been in black and white, your school was in colour. Yeah. So you, mem you remember your classmates and your horrible teacher in colour. Yes, I remember being bullied in colour. Yes. So... Kevin, we appreciate your contribution, but I, I don't think we're, we're not going along. We're not going along with it, even though you are the head of Centre for Academic Development. That's right, and a Unitarian with his three suggestions. This is kind of the, thank you so much for your suggestion. Um, but very interesting. And if you like, if if, in, if if Kevin is right, and you're saying yes, I do, and I always used to, and maybe I still do, dream in black and white. Let us know correspondence at codemail.com. Yeah. We we've been wrong on a regular basis. We have. What else is out? Cat Person. This is the new film from Susanna Fogel, who is best known as the co-writer of Booksmart, which I yes. really, really loved. This is based on a 2017 short story by Kristen Rupinian, which first appeared in the New York Times and then apparently went viral online as a, a, a parable of modern dating. The script is by Michelle Ashford, who was Emmy nominated for her work on the miniseries The Pacific, who developed Masters of Sex and who more recently wrote the script for Operation Mincemeat, which you will remember we I talked do. about on the show. So this starts out looking like it's a still a bad title. It is, but you know. This starts out looking like a quirky indie rom-com. Um, Melia Jones, English actress who played Ruby in Coda, is American. This is another case of British actor taking taking poor American actors. Yes. Um, is American sophomore Margot, who serves popcorn at the local rep cinema. 
and which plays like old reruns to cineasts. Nicholas Braun, who is best known as Greg from Succession. Oh, you know, Greg, Greg, yes. okay, tall Greg. Okay. Useless. Yeah, useless tall Greg. Is Robert, who comes in one day to see a film, buys a strange choice of snack, and she sort of tries to flirt with him. Here's a clip. Um, I'll do a large popcorn and red vines. It's an unusual choice. Thank you. I don't think I've actually ever seen someone buy red vines. Okay. I guess you're wondering why we sell them then. Nobody buys them. So he then goes into the movie, doesn't speak to her on the way out, comes back next week, says that she insulted his snack choice, and then they sort of start tentatively maybe having a conversation. Then they start texting. Then um, she tells her friends about him, you know, about who he is, how tall he is, about that he's older and, you know, he's a little bit awkward. And they start joking, well, he's got something of the serial killer about him. You know, is he, is he basically Norman Bates? Then she goes home to see her mom. And so they're separated for a while. And then they start texting and they text like morning, noon and night. And it's like they're dating, but it's completely online. It's all going well, but at a distance. What happens when she comes back and picks up in person? The film starts with the Margaret Atwood quote, which we've mentioned here before, which is, men are afraid that women are going to laugh at them. Women are afraid that men are going to kill them. And the rest of the film basically tests that premise. You know, is he a dorky Star Wars fan? Is he somebody who's just got a thing about Harrison Ford? Or is he actually Norman Bates? He says he loved cats, so surely he's nice. But no one's actually seen his cat, so is he making it up? Now, here's the thing. Do you remember Promising Young Woman? I do. Okay. <clears throat> Tonally, <clears throat> this reminded me slightly of Promising Young Woman, although I have to say for my money, this is the smarter film. The way in which the confused battleground of sex can change from funny to threatening to terrifying to completely incidental, you know, on a dime, is really brilliantly observed. The performances are great. The music choices and the needle drops are very, very smart. And there is one scene, which is a, a scene which takes place in a bedroom, which dramatizes an internal <clears throat> sort of dialogue that somebody's having with themselves. And it reminded me of, there was a drama uh, by Patricia Rosmo uh, in 2018 called Mouthpiece, in which one character is played by two people. And it is a brilliant dramatization of an internal psychological struggle that is actually playing out in real time while something else is happening and somebody else is in the room. The ambiguity of it is really sustained. I mean, like Margot, you just don't know how seriously or not to take any situation. One minute you're laughing, one minute you're awkward, one minute. I mean, I, th I thought it was really, really good and I knew nothing about it when I went in at all, but I thought it, it did a fantastic job of dramatizing that that strange danger zone of modern relationships in which, you know, one minute things seem okay, the next minute things don't seem okay. Can you, are you misreading people's uh, signals? I, you know, are you getting yourself involved in situations that you shouldn't be? And as I said, the whole thing begins with that Margaret Atwood quote, and it then does a brilliant dramatization of discussing that idea that men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. How long does it take before you stop thinking of him as Greg? About five seconds. Really? Yeah, okay. really. That's interesting. Yeah, so when he when he comes in, you go, Greg. And then 
almost immediately it stops. And I think actually that's one of the great triumphs of the movie. Somebody else said to me, it's a smart bit of casting because you bring the Greg baggage in. And I thought, no, you don't. No, you don't. It's a very different character. Um, Gabriel Byrne is going to be on the show the uh, great Gabriel uh, Byrne. very soon, uh, talking about a, a movie called Dance First, where he plays Samuel Beckett. And the reason I mention it is, because uh, I've seen the film, is that it's the same thing with that, is that within, because there's, there's a younger actor who plays a younger Sam, Samuel Beckett, and then Gabriel Byrne is there. And to start with, you go, oh, it's Gabriel Byrne. But then he beca- then it's not. And then it's not. And yeah. then it, he's Samuel Beckett, which yeah. is the mark, I think, of clearly that this film that you're talking about, Cat Person, has works. Yes, clearly. I, I think you can it, forget that Greg is Greg in five seconds. Yeah, I mean, literally what happens is he walks up to the counter and I went, oh, Greg. And then, and then I never thought about it again. Cat Person is uh, another movie that's out this week. What else can we go and see? Five Nights at Freddy's. This is the latest Blumhouse production, 15-rated slasher fantasy based on the video game franchise with which I am sure you are totally familiar. And I have to say not. Okay. Uh, Scott Cawthorne, who who created the video game, uh, co-wrote the script, also producer, and uh, it's directed by uh, Emma Tammy. So in the game, the setup of the game is... You're a night watchman in Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, which is named after an animatronic bear mascot. And then the player will be menaced by animatronic creatures and characters and traps, that sort of thing. So in the film, Josh Hutchison is a young man living with his very young sister. He's haunted by the fact that as a child, he had a brother and the brother was taken after he was meant to be looking after him, but he looked away for a moment and then the brother was gone. Now he's racked with guilt. He spends his nights trying to dream himself back into the moment when his young brother was abducted and remember the details of the car that he saw pulling away. Matthew Lillard, who of course really came to people's attention through Scream, although also in, in, in Hackers, gets him a job as a security guard in the closed down pizza parlor. The hours are terrible. He says he doesn't want to work nights because he wants to dream his way back into his past. He says, but on the plus side, the hours aren't as terrible as the money. So uh, on the first night he's there, he he falls asleep on the job. Things don't go so well. We very There's a thing very, very early on, and I'm not giving anything away. This is not a plot spoiler because, you know, everybody knows what Five Nights at Freddy's is. There is a line that basically what we're dealing with is ghost children possessing robot animals. Say that again. Ghost children possessing robot animals. So the next time he goes back, he goes back with his daughter because he thinks that she might be able to help him find his way back to his lost brother. And there is a policewoman who has her own skin in the game. Anyway, take a look. Welcome to Freddy's. Have you met them yet? Met who? Foxy, Bonnie, Chica, and Freddy. Back in the 80s. Some kids went missing. What is this? That's why the place shut down. The police searched Freddy's. Hey! They never found the kids. What the the idea of a film of this dates back to 2015. Warner Brothers had it. Um, Blumhouse picked it up in 2017. At one point, Chris Columbus was attached. You know, Chris Columbus. So I think that would have been a very, very different film. In 2021, I reviewed Willy's Wonderland. Do you remember this? No. Okay. Well, this was a film that was basically ripped off of the Five Nights at Freddy's thing. It was Nick Cage is a drifter. doesn't say anything, doesn't speak. He's in a car. Car needs doing. He doesn't have any money. So they say, okay, spend a night being a janitor in Willy's Wonderland. And he ends up wordlessly fighting a bunch of animatronic possessed creatures. Yes. 
okay, but he doesn't say anything. And I said at the time, I think he probably took the role. He didn't have any lines to learn. The thing is that that film wasn't good. The trailer was actually better than the film. In fact, we had correspondence from the person who had cut the trailer for Willy's Wonderland. But it was knowingly culty trash. It cost a fifth of what this movie now costs. So on the plus side, creepy animatronic funhouse amusements are creepy. I mean, you know, if you look at everything from, you know, the the the, the ventriloquist dummies in, you know, Magic or, or, or Dead of Night, or, or you look at, you know, Toby Hooper's Fun House, we all know that the idea of those things, they are creepy. They can be creepy. Plus, I like Josh Hutchison and the Newton Brothers score has an 80s throwback charm. And I like Matthew Lillard. On the downside, the script, the plot is way too involved and convoluted for its own good. It's got stuff about hidden family secrets, hidden pasts. They don't add to the charm. They just get in the way because in the end, it is a story about being terrorized by, you know, possessed animatronic animals. At least in Willy's Wonderland, it just got straight into Nick Cage beating up things with a stick. And that was kind of what it was. This aims for that poltergeist-like sweet spot between horror, satire, young adult adventure, but it ends up being just too messy for its own good. I mean, I every now and then one of the possessed animatronic creatures comes out of the shadows and you go, oh, okay, you know, that yeah, scary fox. But it's every now and then. Other than that, it's pretty disappointing. I mean, particularly considering the massive following that the game had and the fact that we've already had Willy's Wonderland, which did everything that this did for a fifth of the price. If you've seen it, if you've seen any of these films, we'd love to hear what you think. Correspondence at KermanAbear.com. Time for this week's listener correspondence. Here's our What's On guide. Hi, Mark and Simon. This is Alice from Create Space Visual Design, part of Blackfriars Settlement Charity. I'd like to invite listeners to join us for a movie night. On the 2nd of November, we will celebrate never-ending Halloween together with 1991 Adam's family. If you would like to help raise funds to support mental health recovery in creative community, don't wait. Go to our website, createspace.org.uk, and secure your ticket by donating to our studio. You can expect not only cult classic 1991 Adam's Family movie, but also bottomless snacks and my introduction to pop cultural phenomenon of Adam's Family. Don't miss this Halloween celebration. November the 2nd, Blackfriars Settlement, London. Doors open at 7 p.m., start at 7.30. See you there. Hi, Simon and Mark. This is Matthew Thomason, I'm composer from O Region. Just to let you know, we're doing a live score screening of the film Long Way Back at the Hall for Cornwall on November 7th. I'll be performing the piano score live along with the film, and I'll be joined by Luke Toms, who's going to be performing songs from the film. Uh, tickets are available on the Hall for Cornwall website. Cheers. Hi, my name's Harriet. I would love to tell you about my vintage poster market. It's happening on the 3rd to the 5th of November at the Copeland Gallery in Peckham. There will be thousands of original mid-century film posters, including the most exquisite version of a Black Narcissus poster you'll ever see. That one's for you, Mark. Do you think they've earmarked it for me? Yeah. Has it been put aside for me? I'm not sure whether she meant... I'm mentioning that because of you, or... No, I took it as it's for for me. Yes, it's in the post. So it's Harriet from Vintage Poster Market in Peckham. Uh, Matthew, composer from O-Region. And and 
I have to say, um, I, I bumped into Matthew at a Bowie Lounge gig recently, and they said they were doing this a long way back. It's a very touching film, and the music is really, really good. So, you know. What is O-Region? Well, I, th- I believe he probably means Cornwall. Anyway, doing a live score screening of A Long Way Back at the Hall for Cornwall. But what, yeah. why, was it, why would O-Region be I don't Cornwall? know. Anyone know about O-Region? No. Okay. Very good. Matthew, thank you anyway. And Alice, first of all, a volunteer at Create Space Visual Design promoting a fundraiser movie night on the 2nd of November. By the way, Alice's partner is a long-time premium listener whose star shone bright when his question was asked in our interview with Gary Oldman back in the day. So anyway, so he's been living off that for a while. I can answer your question. O-Region makes film and theatre in Cornwall. Right. There we go. Matthew, thank So he's from O-Region, as opposed to he's writing in from a place called O-Region. And it sounded like he was like from another planet. He's like a science fiction. I am Matthew. (laughs) I come from O-Region. Anyway, uh, if you've got an audio trail, if you want to send us a voice note or something to advertise whatever it is that you've got, which is vaguely something to do with movies, send it to correspondence at codomeo.com. That's it for take one. Uh, This has been a Sony Music Entertainment production. The team was Lily, Vicky, Zaki, Michaeli, Teddy, Gully, Matthiasi, Bethy, Hannery and Simony Pooley. Um, (laughs) Mark, what is your film of the week? Well, it's a double header. I am going for two films of the week, yes. which are Cat Person, Typist Artist, Pirate King. Cat or, or actually, do it the other way. Typist Artist, Pirate King, Cat Person. Two movies and not one or four. <laughs> uh, take two has also landed with loads of extra stuff, recommendations, bonus reviews. Uh, take three will be with you on Wednesday. Thank you for listening. Oh, and more with Thelma. The listeners' questions will be in take two. That's where you go for that. <laughs>